Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors now. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the contest? Go ahead. Make my day. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Black Hole Cinema with your host, Tony Black. And today we will be reviewing the different ends of the spectrum in terms of films. There will be a film which I consider to be possibly one of, if not the best film of 2014. Certainly, I imagine at the end of the year, it will be on that scale. And on the other end, there will be what I would consider to be hopefully one of the worst films of 2014. I say hopefully because I really don't think that there'll be films that are as rubbish as one of the ones I'm talking about today. I dearly hope not anyway, otherwise it's going to be a very, very bad year for motion pictures. So you're going to see two ends of the spectrum today, and you're going to hear my thoughts on them. So without further ado, let's go. Okay, moving on to the first review of this podcast. I had the good fortune of going to see... Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Who wouldn't? At the Grand Budapest, sir. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Monsieur Gustav H. Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is he flirting with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. Now, I've got to admit, I've not always got on with Wes Anderson as a director. He's very obviously well-known in the movie world as being quite an auteur, you know, this American movie director who has a very, very unique visual style about his films. You know, he's done films like The Royal Tenenbaums, uh, Rushmore, uh, The Darjeeling Limited, lots of quite well-known indie kind of slightly art house films, maybe, that paint a very kind of stylized, slightly sort of hyper-real, very sweet but also very biting and black kind of picture of, of modern America in, in most senses of, 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 of kind of 
not really a realistic picture of America, but it's more about the interrelationships between characters, and it's all very offbeat and very strange at times. And there's, it's always looking at things from a slightly different angle. They, and he tends to favour eccentrics. You know, a lot of his characters tend to be real eccentrics or complete oddballs, as demonstrated in some of his films. Now, I've, I've, of the Wes Anderson films I've watched, and I've not seen all of them yet, Rushmore and The Royal Tenenbaums were both films that I appreciated on an aesthetic level. You know, I, I understood why they were uh, so well appreciated in terms of the visual style and in terms of, of what Anderson was trying to do but and what he was trying to evoke. But they just didn't feel anything with them. You know, I, I, I mean, Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore, I, I, I couldn't stand him. He's a good actor, but I couldn't stand him in that. I couldn't stand the character he was playing. And... Oddly enough, you know, watching people like Ben Stiller and Gene Hackman and Gwyneth Paltrow in the Royal Tenenbaums, I, I, I just didn't care about it all. I was just, I wasn't there with it. So I came into the Grand Budapest Hotel, Wes Anderson's latest, with, I wouldn't say low expectations, but with a, a guarded sense of, is this going to be more of the same kind of thing that I just will not get on with? You know, is it going to be very, very Anderson and... Am I going to appreciate how it looks? Am I, am I, am I not going to get it? Am I, am I not going to get it? Because I do feel with these films, I'm not getting something that other people are, that I'm not clicking with it. And it frustrates me a little bit, actually. Because uh, it always does when that happens with a filmmaker. I, I want to feel what other people are feeling. So I came into this with that, you know, that, that vibe. And I've got to say that I walked in that cinema, not massively a fan of Wes Anderson, and I walked out thinking that if he's not one of the greatest filmmakers we have then I don't know who is because the Grand Budapest Hotel was an absolute joy from beginning until end for so many amazing reasons it's so nice to be able to say that about about a film because so far this year there have been there have been some decent enough films but there's been a lot of you know as usual a lot of mm, very mere films the last last time I really enjoyed something this much was 12 Years a Slave but for very different reasons the well, first off, let's talk about how it looks because it's it's absolutely gorgeous throughout. This entire film is stunningly shot. It's it's set in in this fictional Eastern European uh, republic called Zubrovka, you know, an Eastern European country. And and the Grand Budapest Hotel is this great. Oddly enough, even though Budapest is is in Hungary, it's still called the Budapest Hotel, and it's on a mountainside, and it's this classical old hotel, basically a typical kind of gigantic, a bit like the Overlook Hotel, I suppose, from The Shining, that kind, of, that kind of old grace to it. And immediately you're hit by the fact it's so colourful. You know, Anderson's films tend to be that way anyway, but it's just so much colour coming at you on the screen, so much beauty, really, in terms of the visual styles and the palette and, you know, the white snow and, and the, the purple and red gilding of the, of the hotel and the costumes, and everything's just punched up to 11. And again, it's stylized. You know, it, the real world isn't this colourful and, and gorgeous, but it all fits the tone of what he's going for. And it, it's it's sumptuous. It really is. Cinemat cinematography by his longtime collaborator uh, Robert Yeoman is is peerless. It really is. If if it doesn't win awards for how it looks, something has gone wrong. It should win a lot of awards anyway. This film, but something's gone wrong if it doesn't. So immediately you're struck by the visual side, beautiful, and everything like that. Then it's surprising how quickly this whole thing moves. You know, this whole 
script and the whole movie. I mean, it's it's just under 100 minutes, and it absolutely thrashes along right from the off. We're, we're keeping up with the fact that the story essentially is in the 1980s, a guy writes a book about the Grand Budapest Hotel based on the fact 20 odd years ago he met the owner of of the hotel this reclusive old man who tells him the story of what happened when he was young and he started at the Grand Budapest Hotel in the 1930s so you've got three time frames even though the 1980s is, is only in it briefly and it kind of and it's mainly the 1930s telling the story but you've also got this framing in the 1960s, and, the, and he sh- he sh- Anderson shot it in three aspect ratios, which means that every single time period looks slightly different, and it, and it fits. You know, the 1960s is, is slightly, you know, that, that kind of elegance has kind of toned down a little bit because it's, it's a lot more bland and the, the place is empty and stuff like that. And anyway, the story flips between these time periods as it tells the story. You've got F. Murray Abraham, who's, who's not in much these days, and he's a world-class actor, as the old man telling Jude Law, who's the the young author, about what happened thirty years ago, and, and in thirty years ago, his character, this guy Zero, starts as the the lobby boy under um, Mr. Gustav, who is the concierge at the Grand Budapest Hotel, and our main character, played by Ray Fiennes. Uh, and in a nutshell, Gustav is Gustav is this real charismatic, kind of like the boss of the hotel in a way, and he um, and he he has this penchant for sleeping with old women <laughs> um, who come and stay there. And ultimately, it leads him into this, this whole like uh, farcical kind of plot involving a murder and a priceless piece of art that is bestowed upon him and then prison and all kinds of things. And it just starts to really, really rock it from that point on. But right from the beginning, Anderson throws us in there with this these multi-time frames and, and the narration of how Zero starts. And it's quick. It moves. It's quick. And you, you, you're keeping up. But everything's rushing, whirling around you. And unlike in some films where that'd be a problem, in this it's not. It's actually it feels like a bit of a roller coaster, which is great because Anderson's films haven't always felt that way to me. This was the this was the first film I've watched of his that actually felt like it moved and it was going somewhere. And it's probably because it's a comedy. It's far more of a, an outright comedy than he's done before. It's a lot more of a farce, um, and that is exactly how Fines treats it. Let me say this right now: if Ray Fines doesn't get some kind of award for Gustav then I think there should be a riot in the streets, frankly. I, he, if, if any, he, I hope he gets nominated for an Oscar next year. I really do. Uh, or at least he gets a BAFTA or something for this, because he was, he's brilliant. I mean, he, he's already proven that he can do comedy, pr- principally in, in, in Bruges, uh, the Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson movie, which is a, a, a comic great of recent years. Uh, and he stole that film. And this is a, it's a very different kind of comedic turn, and that was a lot more sinister. This is... Finds fully charming, very black comedy. He's very rude, very cheeky, and that—that's that, a side of him that he can really, really puts across with this. Anderson's script is very sweet natured and touching and, and and thoughtful, but it's also it's also scorchingly naughty at times. It's great, and a lot of the laughs come from the th- some of the things Gustav says. Like at one point, Zero says, "You were sleeping with that woman. She's eighty-six, and he goes, "I've had older." And <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. That is. Because it's just the way he does it. it it's, he's so good. He's so, so good. As is Tony Revolori, who's a new uh, a newcomer in, in the young role of Zero. And he, he's, he's fantastic as well. And him, he, him and Fines bounce off each other. You know, he's the protege, the young protege who take, Gustav takes under his wing and he ends up getting dragged into 
all the schemes. And, and it's their friendship, really, which forms the centre of the film. Even with everything else going on around it, it is that that forms the centre of the film. And it's they are such a good double act and such a funny double act. Revel already, deserve, again, possibly deserves an award. And he's... Um, and he's really a one to watch because he was he was terrific in this. And I mean the cast itself, I mean, goodness me, you know, I actually listed who was in it. And, you know, you're talking about, I mean, the names. Edward Norton, Tilda Swinton, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, who you don't see much anymore. He's a brilliant actor. You know, Matthew Amor Amorick. Just just endless, endless names. Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, and they just keep coming at you. Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe. It's <laughs> It's it's just fantastic, and you see all these people, and you're like, oh, that's that's one of the fellas, and they all play. Some of them only play like really small parts in the whole film, but they all seem to work, and they all seem to be part of this tapestry that, that's going on. And you know, it's it's it, it's it's a really funny script because it's very it's very farcical. It's it's like an old fashioned caper sometimes at times. That it, it's I said in a in a written review, it feels like a bygone age movie. It feels like a movie that we forgot that was made like. 50, 60 years ago and we forgot existed and, and it was a gem and we've actually just discovered it now and oh yeah you know it's Anderson's really tapped into an old style of filmmaking in a way for this I think an old kind of classic feel and it's and it just comes alive it's just it's got it's got everything I think a good comedy film needs it's frothy it's funny it's rude it's it, it, it will it will definitely anger animal rights <laughs> <laughs> uh, people at one point which I won't spoil but um, yeah if you like cats then I, I'm not sure you're going to get on with this film but uh, it, there's you know it's, it's just got it's got so much goodness that it's genuinely hard to think of anything that they get wrong you know it, it's well paced it's brilliantly written it's wonderfully directed it's gloriously shot it's got a fantastic cast playing some brilliant roles it is one of the best films you will see this year if, if it's not in my top five at the end of the year, I'll be stunned. And it will mean that we have a, a fantastic year uh, for film. Because, and, and, and Anderson, I don't think, has, has, has ever done a better film than this. I think this is his masterpiece so far. I'm sure there's more to come with him. But I, it, I, don't, think, I don't think he's done a better film. And I, I suspect that as I, when I go back and look into his back catalogue, I, I might hopefully find other films to enjoy, but I don't think there's going to be anything as good as the Grand Budapest Hotel. Take your hands off my lobby boy! Welcome back to the newest segment of my show, which is the guest who comes on and talks about the film, which is a terrible segment name. Uh, I, I need to shorten that. I really do. But uh, the idea is that uh, a friend of mine comes on the show and uh, picks their favourite film, not necessarily the film they think is the best film ever made, but their favourite film, the film they will go back and watch time and time again. And they are going to try and convince you why you should watch that movie if you haven't already. If you have, then you're going to listen to this and be nodding, going, hmm, hmm, very true, hmm. Uh, so either way. It's a winner, isn't it? And today, my uh, very special guest is one of the uh, leading lights of Compass.net uh, hosts, uh, Mr. Dan Taylor. Hello. Welcome, Dan. Great pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. It's lovely. And your film of choice is... Uh, Les Miserables. Les Miserables. 
it should be a bit of a shock, I guess, for some people, but um, and it's the 2012 version, not to be confused with the 1998 um, one with Liam Neeson and uh, Jeffrey Rush. So it's the 2012 with Mr. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. What what what, <laughs> what film? Um, interestingly enough, do you think people would expect from you? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Working in cinema, that expected to be, I don't know, a bit more. <laughs> I don't, just. A, a bit, a, a bit of a better example. Uh, I don't know, maybe a bit more arty or Oscar baity, but which I suppose Les Mis was in 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 a few ways. Oh yeah, but, yeah. But ultimately, my love of it comes from the love of the musical, um, which I've seen numerous times on the West End, um, and in concert and, and various other mediums. So when the film came along, I was you know excited to to give it a go as well. Mm, it was it was quite a big deal, wasn't it, when it came out. Um... Two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, 2012, yeah. start of 2012, I think. Yeah, it was the end of 2012 in America. I think it was uh, 2013 oh. in the UK. Ah. Yeah, it was, it was released Christmas Day, I think, 2012, I think. Oh, right, okay. So it's, it's yeah, it's not all that old, really, at all, is it? Um, oh. And, yeah, I remember, I do remember, yes, actually, that's right. Because I remember the um, my, my 50-year-old boss uh, was very excited. Yeah. <laughs> and I went... Yeah, I'm not so bothered. I'm more looking forward to Die Hard Five. Um, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, but uh, yeah, it's it's funny. I I did actually see Les Misérables um, in uh, in the West End when I was about fifteen, and, and being a fifteen year old boy who mainly went on his drama trip to try and pull girls, I had no interest whatsoever, and I spent <laughs> I spent most of the play looking through. You know that those big um, you know theatres, then they, they're very high up, and you have binoculars yeah. to see the stage. I spent yes. most of my time using those binoculars to look at the bald patch on a man who was about three rows down. <laughs> <laughs> that that was more interesting to me than the play. But I um, so this shows that what an uncouth youth I was. But well, well, not really uncouth. I this year saw the bodyguard uh, with Beverly Knight and basically spent most of the time looking at her tits with the goggles on. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's the show was awful, so that was that was the highlight. I didn't even know she was in that. So there you go. So tell us, Dan, then why. Why is it your favourite film? It's just because of my emotional connection uh, with the source material, really. The film isn't brilliant. You know, there is pitfalls in everything, including the singing, which is the most important part, you know, particularly Russell Crowe, which got obviously panned by critics and, you know, rightly so, he was pretty damn awful. I thought he was in a band. Yeah, but a rock band. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So then he's singing opera, effect, which is, you know, effectively it's not quite, you know, um, Pavarotti opera, but no. it is, you know, it is operatic yeah. stuff or musical theatre. And and obviously they put their own kind of Hollywood movie style spin on it. And, you know, unlike on the stage, because you can see their facial expressions and the emotion, um, you know, in their face, mm. you know, ultimately they can act it a little bit more than perhaps they do on the stage. And Anne Hathaway, particularly, who obviously won the Oscar, uh, in you know last year, you know she won it because of the, the emotional performance that she gave, uh, singing "I Dreamed a Dream," and I'm not ashamed to admit I did cry <laughs> during oh, that in the theatre. You soppy sod. Uh, <laughs> well, that, yeah, because that "I Dreamed a Dream," I, I didn't. Uh, unfortunately, that had been ruined by Susan Boyle over recent years, mm. and I didn't realise that it was from that until I saw the clip of Anne Hathaway shaving head, wasn't she? Yeah, um, yeah. and then singing. Oh, all that stuff. Yeah, so, but that, that was done pretty much in, in one take because really? the, the woman was actually cutting her actual hair 
during that that song. Obviously, they they you know practiced it numerous times, but actually, when the live kind of run uh, happened in the film, you know, it's it's all done you know recorded live the singing as well. It's not dubbed over afterwards. It is right. you know okay. as as it happens, and you know this woman is chopping. And hacking away Anne Hathaway's hair as she's mm. belting out this song, so it's you know it's quite emotional, really. Yeah. Well, that's good because that adds to the authenticity, doesn't it? Really, of the, yeah. of the whole scene. Yeah. So, what what is it about Les Misérables then, really, that that gets you? I mean, you know, if, it, if this film obviously is the love of this film has stemmed from the past and from your experience yeah. on stage show and stuff. What is it about this particular play? It's a play that I actually did myself uh, with a junior operatic group uh, when I was seventeen, eighteen. I played the role of Javert. And it was the best time I had ever had doing a play. And I've done, you know, 10, 11 plays mm. um, and musicals uh, in the last, few, you know, the last kind of 10 years. Yeah. And that one particularly struck a chord with me. And I was able to connect with the source material more than, you know, any other, you know, music, particularly with musicals. Usually they're really dumbed down and simple and, you know, there's not a lot going on. Mm. But, you know, there's real emotion in, you know, in this musical and, and that's then transpires, it will transpire, but that's then brought into the film and actually enhanced by certain things that Tom Hooper decides to do and, you know, decisions that he makes to kind of add little bits into the story because obviously it was originally a book by Victor Hugo as well. So he had that to work from as well as the musical to kind of bring those two mediums together, you know, to put it on the big screen and, and to basically enhance the story and almost make it worth it as it were for people that have seen you know the musical as many times as i have and there are people that have probably seen it hundreds of times they can go and watch this and find something new in it and that's exactly what i think he did and, you know he was successful yeah it's interesting because we both we both come from a theatrical bent you and i don't we you yeah, know, yeah both we've both done drama we've both performed and uh, it's it's interesting when a play or a musical in this case really grabs you and, and you have a real long-term fondness for it i think um for, for me, it's, it's Dracula. I played Dracula once when I was um, a sixth former, quite a long time ago now. That's why I think I, I will always love the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula film. I don't know if you've seen that, with Gary Oldman as Dracula. Um, because I based my performance of Dracula on Gary Oldman in that film. So it is, it is interesting how these things, you know, they, they grab you. And then even if something comes out, I mean, even if a subpar Dracula film comes out nowadays, I tend to find some element of it I enjoy because of my, you know, love of doing that play. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it is interesting how these things, you know, for, for someone like, like you, who is um, got that creative side, so it, took, it comes to you in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I was able to, you know, particularly with Javert, obviously it's a character I studied in quite a lot of detail, and I'm able to, I guess, sympathise with him a lot more than, I guess, a lot of other people. Because ultimately, you know, he's the antagonist mm. of the piece. But he's not a bad guy, you know. He's a good guy, just who is being portrayed as ultimately the enemy because you know our hero is you know a slight a slight anti-hero, as it were. Yeah. You know, he's just a police officer who's doing his job and doing his job really well. Uh, well, not well enough because he's <laughs> getting yeah. away, but <laughs> and ultimately, so I, I can understand that. And ultimately, Tom Hoop made the decision to. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Adlon seen in um, after the barricade falls and basically he, lied, he, he had all the bodies of the students lined up in the street and Chevelle walks down and inspects them. And he sees the body of Gavroche, which is a boy of like 10, 11 years old. And he takes a medal off his own jacket, you know, a policeman's medal and places it on the child's chest. And that moment just kind of personified that character, which you wouldn't get in the musical. You don't get in the musical. It's just, oh, he's the bad guy. If it was a pantomime, you'd boo him. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and in, you know, and in the film, he's able to, again, give this other side to that this character and show that you know he is human he does have a heart and you know this moves him as much as it would you or i yeah it's it's interesting because the the, there's something that has lasted a long time about this um well as you say this this originally the book by victor hugo where these characters came from and then the the subsequent musicals and things like that and and then movies i mean there's something about this story that keeps going, doesn't it? And keeps being reimagined and, and all this kind of thing. What, what do you think that is? What is it about Les Miserables? I think it's about how you've got this man who gets redemption ultimately and how we can all be given a second chance, mm. but also about how the world isn't quite as black and white as, you know, particularly the, the media would like us perceived to be. And it's something actually that kind of uh, TV shows like Homeland, etc. Kind of dabbled in in kind of the most recent season where they've shown actually you know who's the enemy you know you've got you know terrorists going on you know the United States and I'm not going to say they're they're not bad people but you know from their point of view America have done equally as horrific things mm-hmm. to their country and it, it's it, it's the same kind of thing here where you've got these you know revolutionaries who are fighting against the state. And, you know, from the state's point of view, these are just petty criminals who are, you know, trying to overthrow them and, you know, cause trouble and disrupt kind of the natural order of things. And so it kind of creates a a kind of a grey area in how, you know, good and bad and, you know, evil isn't just black and white. You know, it is more 
of the grey hue, I guess. So it's got that timeless, yeah, it has that timeless recurring theme of, of yeah, of who, who is the real enemy, you know, who, who are the people fighting for the right things, you know? And, yeah. And like you say, there are two sides um, for each of the main the main characters in this really that you can you can look at and you can appreciate and you can say well you know you you can see you can see each side of it I think and that's I mean that's that that shows the timelessness of a story really when it does that yeah um, well well Matt, Matt, Matt yeah you say about you know who's the enemy and it was, it, it, you know Marius such a sings song towards the end of the show empty chairs and empty tables where all his friends have been killed mm. and he basically says. I don't know why. I don't know why you're dead. What did it stand for? Yeah. What, have, what, did you, what has your death achieved? And why am I here and you're not? And basically questions, you know, everything that they've been fighting for. And, and there are moments throughout the revolution, you know, throughout the revolution, throughout the, throughout the show, where the revolutionaries are questioning yeah. what they're doing and whether they're doing the you know, right thing or, you know, even whether they're doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Uh, you know, because I'm sure, you know, these young teenagers, you know, you know, when university students are like, we like to protest about everything. Oh, I yeah. say, I say me as if I'm still a university student, but no, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, we, we like to, you know, argue about everything. You know, if you yeah. think something's an injustice, we'll shout and scream about it. Absolutely. So this is exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's, it, 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 like, like we say, it's, it's re- recurring ideas that, that stick. So it, it, like you mentioned earlier that there was um, a 1998 movie. Have you seen that? Yes, yeah. What what's what makes this one a better adaptation than that one? It doesn't have Claire Danes in it. <laughs> <laughs> not, a fan, uh, not a fan. No, no. no. Uh, I ju- just grin and bear her in Homeland. <laughs> <laughs> I there are obviously certain things about the 1998 version which is brilliant. Jeffrey Rush's portrayal of, of Javert is fantastic, and I was I I was really excited. I thought he was actually going to. You know, recur, uh, you know, play that character again in the musical because the you know the actor's got quite a, a decent voice, mm. and they ended up going with the biggest star that was Russell Crowe. And obviously, you can get to know the story a little bit better, in a little bit more detail in the '98 film because obviously there's no music, so you've got the dialogue uh, that obviously gives a little bit more exposition than the than the musical right. version does. But I think. For me, 2000, it's just the 2012 version is just a little more glitzy and a bit more glamorous, I guess. Yeah. And obviously, as well, as I said, the music I can connect with. And so that's why, you know, I love it. More entertaining, maybe. Than... Yeah. So what, what as, a, as a final thought, what do you think uh, you, would, you would say to someone who hasn't seen this and they're not necessarily that interested in musicals or, mm-hmm. you know, they're, um, they don't really know much about Les Miserables and there probably are one or two people on the planet who don't know what this is. <laughs> What would you say to them to watch it? What's 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 the one piece of advice? What's the one you know uh, a, a bit of you know encouragement for them to do it? Ultimately, it's a timeless story about a guy who just wants a second chance at life, and really, all he wants is, is a simple life. He just wants a you know a family and um, you know someone to, to care for, and ultimately, that's 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 what he he, he tries to achieve. Um, in the musical and obviously like any good story there's there's things that are put in his way but but ultimately it's a, it's a feel-good movie I say feel good it's not it's miserable but at the same time <laughs> you kind of go away feeling I don't know how to explain it it's, it's a strange feeling with Les Miserables because you feel really damn sad but at the same time you feel like you you just 
had the best experience of your life. Bittersweet, maybe? Yeah. Melancholy? Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I don't, I, it's, but yeah it's bittersweet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of those, yeah, mo- moving, moving probably is another good description, isn't it, then? If, you, if you've been moved by it, then, you know. What, what, does the, what does the title stand for, by the way? Do you know the uh, translation? Uh, the Miserable. The Miserable. Yeah, which makes sense. <laughs> Le Miserable. So there you go. The title itself just says, you know, it's not going to be a um, an appetite comedy. But then that's not what you're going for. So there, there is there is comic scenes in it. You know, there is a little bit of light relief, which is played by Sasha Baron Cohen and um, Helen Bowen Carter in the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is there is moments of light relief, but but ultimately it's pretty damn sad most of the way through. Yeah, but an uplifting experience that. Anyone can enjoy. There's even a love story for people that are into that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, they should put these quotes on the DVD, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, they'd, they'd, they'd sell. Okay, brilliant. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dan, for lending your, your views on your favourite movie. No problem. Uh, hopefully we've inspired you to go and watch it again. Yeah, uh, guys, you know, I've not seen it. I've not seen the this movie, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and check it out now after Dan's recommendation. So uh, this is my bit of black hole advice. You know, go and check it out. Um, thanks again, Dan. No problem. Pleasure having you. Yeah, see you next time. Okay, welcome back. And it's time for our last review of the day. I've been to see Need for Speed. Racing is an art. Revenge will surely come. But racing with passion, that's high art. Toby Marshall driving the chariot of the gods. I'm willing to give six million dollars to anyone who puts a stop to him. We'll settle this behind the wheel. Okay. Need for speed. Right. Need for speed. Well, I'll come straight out of the gate and say it isn't very good. But before we get to that, before we get to why it isn't very good. It's best we go back a little bit and we kind of talk a little bit about video game adaptations. Because for quite some time now, Hollywood has been adapting all these kinds of video games that have, been, that have turned upon, you know, PS1 upwards to now PS4, you know. Um, we're talking about, you know, your Resident Evils, your Silent Hills. Um, I mean, well, people have been doing this for years. Super Mario Brothers, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, they've been doing these adaptations for decades now. And some have turned out, like Street Fighter, like Mortal Kombat, to be quite kitsch and fun in a in a poor way. They're still badly made films, but there's just things about them, like Raul Julia in Street Fighter, for instance, that just make them watchable, even though they are quite bilge. And... You know, there have, and there have been others, like Alone in the Dark by Uwe Boll, which is a cinematic atrocity, you know, and it's just very... I, I honestly cannot, off the top of my head... There probably is one, but I cannot, off the top of my head, think of a, of a really genuinely great video game-to-film adaptation. I just can't. I would need to actually think about it. You know, Lara Croft wasn't very good. Lara Croft the sequel wasn't very good, even though I do have kind of a soft spot for The Cradle of Life. But they're not great films. So, you know, it's, it, I, I would struggle. I really would struggle. There might be one or two out of a lot. So immediately, Need for Speed is up against it because it's got this cinematic 
you know, history of being a video game to film adaptation. And, you know, that's, that has proven time and time again that the mediums don't seem to work. They don't seem to mix. They don't seem to come together. The difference, however, between Need for Speed and certain other games, such as your Tomb Raiders and things like that, and Resident Evils, is that Need for Speed is a racing game. And it's been going for about a decade now or, or more. And it's just pure racing. It's illegal street racing in which these all these sexy souped-up cars tear around American cities, tear through the countryside with cops hot on the tail trying to stop them. And the whole purpose of the game is to be able to complete these circuits and these courses and outrate the police. And there's been all kinds of variations on the idea. You know, there's been one where you really, you're, you're playing as the police even, you know, at the, at the same time. So these things, you know, they flit around and, and, all, and all this stuff. So these things have, have got this past uh, series of games that haven't really been about story. There was one game called The Run, which did have a narrative in it. And it was basically this idea of one guy's going to get to the other side of the country in, in like 24 hours or something like that. Now that game is borrowed for the plot of this film quite heavily. But that is one of the few Need for Speeds that have really got that much narrative in them. So the difference between that and adapting a Resident Evil or a Tomb Raider or something like that is there's, the whole, there's a whole weight of narrative. There's, there's a character or there's characters involved, like Lara Croft, like you know your Jill Valentines and your, your Alices and, and all these guys from, from Resident Evil. There's characters that people have seen in these games, have got to know in these games. The storylines that they've got to know in these games that have built up, there's mythologies, there's all kinds of things that you have to translate and have been done quite often very well in those games. So, you know, you want, I mean, Assassin's Creed will have this same problem next year, although hopefully the fact that Michael Fassbender is in that might mean that it's, uh, it's a different kettle of fish, although it is apparently being directed by Daniel Espinosa, who did Safe House, which was crap. So it, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, and I'll get onto that in a minute. But because it is a lot of this, the key to this is about talent in front of and behind the camera. And Need for Speed doesn't have any, by and large. But my point ultimately is that a, so a game like Need for Speed surely is more ripe for adaptation than these other games that have these characters, that have these backstories. So you, you, know, you could take the basic premise of Need for Speed, which is illegal street racing on the streets of America, cars, girls floating about tough guy characters, and you could probably make, we should in theory be able to make an entertaining, pulpy, B-movie, action, thriller, in, in, you know, in the, in, the vein of, in the vein of the Fast and Furious films, because, you know, they, they, they've, they've made, even though they're, they're quite schlocky and they're not all very good, necessarily, they've, they've, they've made racing quite cachet these days, and it's one of the reasons that Need for Speed probably got made. But that doesn't happen. That does not happen with Need for Speed because, well, in a way, even though I've just said that about Fast and Furious, one of the, the only truly good thing about this film, the only thing to recommend you watch, and it's certainly not a film I recommend you go and see and, and spend money on because it really doesn't deserve that, but it's a, in terms of watching, is the racing. And the racing itself isn't necessarily as overblown and as stupid as Fast and Furious. As, though, as that franchise. And that's to its credit, because it does at least try and keep its, its wheels on the ground to an extent and keep things a bit grounded. And that was one of the things going in, you know. There, there was advanced press talking about how they wanted it to be like 70s action thrillers. And there's one scene where 
characters are, are going to one of these driving movie theatres like they used to have in the 60s and, and Bullet is playing. Now, Bullet has historically got the what most people believe is the, is the best car chase in cinematic history. Um, and I would be hard pushed to disagree with that. Now, you know, that, that, that's a clear way of, of Scott War, the director, saying, look, this, this is what we're trying to do, basically, in the modern day. And... The racing itself is pretty good. You know, it's it's well shot, it's well lensed, the cinematography is pretty decent. It's you know, it looks good, the cars are nicely souped up, they're they're fast, they're furious, they're easy on the eye. It, it's you know, that they are they're well staged. It's quite it, it is fairly visceral, it is it, and there are lots of winks to the games, there's lots of the slow-mo tracking shots, there's lots of spinning around the cars, there's 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 lots of lots of little. If you've played the games, you'll notice things that they've taken from the games and they've put into the film, which is good. You know, all that's good. There's, I can't really argue. You know, if, if you took all the racing bits out of this and you put them together, it would actually be quite a fun half an hour. Say, you know, it, it would it would be relatively decent watching, except for one scene that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, involving an army military plane, which is utterly bonkers and if you've seen the trailer you kind of know the climax of that scene in fact if you've seen the trailer you know you've seen most of the film to be honest with you you really have I was waiting for certain points in the trailer to happen so you know in terms of the driving it's it's good and a lot of people are only going to really be going to see the driving the problem the biggest problem and the reason that this is not a good film in fact it's quite a bad film is the script the script is atrocious it is it is like listening to a a stupid teenager and you know i work with teenagers they're not all stupid but a stupid teenager writing something they think is cool oh it is cool in it to have all these boy races in it you know right now you know what the biggest problem i had with it is that it it tries to glamorize this whole thing it tries to glamorize street racing now street racing is not cool Street racing is fine in a computer game, like when you, like when you play Grand Theft Auto Five or whatever, and it's okay to go and run down a pensioner, shoot them in the face twice, and then blow up a building. It's fine in the context of a game. You don't, you if they made a Grand Theft Auto film, it, it would be terrible if they glamorized this and said, oh, it's a good idea to go out and shoot a pensioner. No, no, it's not. Like it's not a good idea to go out in a, in a supercharged, you know, Ferrari or whatever, or a Lamborghini, at going 180, 280 miles an hour, tearing through countryside, tearing through city streets. Actually, you know, at one point they knock. There's, there's a tramp walking by with a big, um, you know, typical typical in these films. There's a tramp walking by with a, a trolley full of, of shit, and at one point a car charges through this trolley full of shit, and it goes everywhere, and you, and and they just start laughing. You know, and that's just a, 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 a poor person who's just lost everything they've got, and they're laughing at it, right? Now, it just it, it is morally bankrupt. This whole thing is just morally bankrupt from start to finish. These people are not cool. They, they shouldn't be painted as cool. The whole idea is not cool. It should be, you know, pointed out that they are they are crooks. They are villains. They are idiots. In fact, they're lawless idiots who are just charging round. You know, trying to do, and it's it, and even worse. They make the police look stupid. Every opportunity is taken to make the police look like idiots, and in fact, look like people getting away. At one point, Nick Chinlin turns up. Now, Nick Chinlin's a great TV character actor. You know, he's well known for the X Files, well known for lots of other stuff. He's been in things like Con Air and, and stuff like that. He's, he's a really sort of good B movie actor. He turns up in this, and they basically just take the piss out of him. And it's just, you know. It's it's really really bad in terms of that. 
it annoys me. Not quite as annoying as the characters themselves, who are just... Oh, God. Well, you've got Aaron Paul, fresh off Breaking Bad, trying to make a movie, a movie career for himself. Not a good start, Aaron, because... A, you sound like someone's just taken Vin Diesel's voice, shoved it down Christian Slater 20 years ago, and made a person out of it. He's all really, really gravelly. Really gravelly like that, you know? Uh, really brooding. Oh, piss off. You're not fooling anyone. You look about five foot three. And then you've got Dominic Cooper, who's just a bland, kind of slimy, oily villain, the kind you've seen a million times before. He's about as menacing as Elmo. You know, you just smack him down in one punch and he just flail. You've got Imogen Poots, who basically makes, you know, everyone from the home counties look like a tosspot. Right? She, she, she's just a, a you rah, 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 idiot. Michael Keaton. Oh, my God. You know, he, he, he doesn't always make the best choices. He was good in RoboCop. But he seems to have reinvented himself as some kind of new age kind of, yeah, man, it's all cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in this, he's, he's, God, he's annoying. And he's not even in much of it. And you think to yourself, you know, you used to be Batman. What the fuck happened? And then, you know, you've got the, all the, all, I don't even know the, the actors' names, but it's the cat, it's the crew around Aaron Paul's lead. You know, the brooding guy who's come out of prison and he's, he's, he's trying to, you know, stop the guy who framed him and all this. And the, the guys around him are complete idiots all the way through. They, they try and be funny and he fails. There's one scene in particular which, which basically suggests you, you put one finger up at your office job, if you've got an office job, and, you know, uh, forget any pretense of having a decent life where you're working and you're doing things normally and earning a good crust. Actually, fuck that. I, you know, bollocks to that. It's all shit. I'm going to go out and race like, a, like an idiot across America. You know, so all the it's just it's just populated by complete swaggering bellends who you just don't care about. You're not interested in. You know, I, I, I was more I was more interested. I was more, I cared more that the cars weren't getting hurt, weren't getting teared up than these people. So it, it's just it's just morally bankrupt garbage for the most part. Except and boring to cap it off. Except when the racing's happening, you could just cut the racing out, watch the racing, and that's it. But everything else is just rubbish. Don't waste your money. You are out of your mind. <laughs> I love it. And there we go. Episode 5 of Black Hole Cinema Finito. That's me done for this week. One amazing film, one terrible film, and two examples of how different cinema can be. Isn't it wonderful when that happens? Well, not in the case of Need for Speed. Let's not ever have that happen again. But let's have more Grand Budapest hotels, although I'm not quite sure that's possible. I'll be back next week, as ever. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter to hear me talk about film and random other subjects and tell me what you think of the show and tell me where I'm going wrong, what I should do, where I should... Well, anything, anything, basically, anything you think can improve this. I Once again, thank people who are listening. I, we have been getting a, quite a bit of um, traffic, quite a little bit of downloads. They seem to be going up week by week. I mean, I've said that, they'll probably go down. So people are definitely listening to this, which is lovely. And thank you very much if you are, because you don't really get to know that all the time, doing something like this. But while I'm still having fun, I'll keep doing it. So if you're listening, that's a bonus. So, I'll be back next week. Good few films next week. It could be a very, very interesting week. 
if I get to see what I do get to see. So uh, you'll soon know next week when I will be back. Until then, have a great week of film watching and take it easy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.